0: Welcome to Episode 75 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crivat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at Innovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you, in part, by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Alan Scheller-Wolf, Professor of Operations Management at the Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon University, my alma mater. In addition to teaching students about the importance of sustainability in business, Allen's research focuses on stochastic processes, often applied to the energy and sustainability domain, specifically applied to supply chain management, renewable energy, server farms, and service industries. Next week, beginning on Thursday, September 10th, Carnegie Mellon will host its third Intersect at CMU conference virtually as a series focusing on the intersection of the pandemic's long global effects on four foundational elements of society, health, sustainability, the economy, and education. This free virtual conference will be held on September 10th through the 13th, the 18th, the 25th, and October 2nd, and feature keynote lectures and panel discussions featuring thought leaders of disparate disciplines and perspectives from within CMU and beyond, Student-led programming and opportunities for interdisciplinary discussion. Please join the discussion on how our decisions today can help build a better, more robust and more equitable society. Register at cmu.edu/intersect-conf. <laughs> or do what I did, and search CMU Intersect 2020. And speaking of the pandemic, COVID infections are still on the rise many places in the world, so please be careful out there. And please remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind. Also, take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. (laughs) Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat. I'm here with Alan Scheller-Wolf, Professor of Operations Management at Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon University, my alma mater. Alan, welcome to The Climate Champions.
1: Thanks, Lee. I'm very happy to be here.
0: I listened in on a webinar where you spoke about sustainability and climate change issues, which is why I reached out to you. With regards to climate change, can you talk about your motivating moment? What made you feel like you wanted to engage in mitigation?
1: I'm an academic, and I made that choice to be an academic a long time ago. And one of the reasons I made the choice was you have an incredible amount of freedom to work on what you want. And if you don't want to work on something, you don't have to. And if you want to, you do. As I've evolved over 25 years at Carnegie Mellon, I've always wanted to do some amount of work in research that is, let's say, toward the social good. I did some work on blood supply chains, for example, which isn't sustainability, but it's something that, you know, I can help Caterpillar deliver tractors, or I can help the Red Cross deliver blood. Both are good, but there's something more engaging. I guess over the past five or six years, increasingly... One feels like, yeah, there are certain really big problems facing society. One of them is obviously climate change. I've been exposed to it academically because my students actually asked for a sustainable operations class years ago and thought I would teach it, so I started. And then more and more you see kind of the intersection of what I would consider interesting problems mathematically, along with things that you can kind of feel happy about doing and that if my daughter says what are you working on i can say hey i'm working on rooftop solar or i'm working on autonomous vehicles or wind farms and it's interesting for me but you also have the idea that if you're going to work on stuff and you have the luxury of being paid to think about stuff at least part of that time i want to think about stuff that can potentially help in some small way mitigate climate change
0: I also enjoy being able to tell my kids that I'm working on mitigating climate change. One of my daughters is living with us now because of the pandemic, and I know she's very proud that I work on this.
1: Yeah, I don't know if my daughter's proud, per se. I think it's nice for her to be able to talk about something that makes sense instead of server farms or scheduling jobs in CPUs. But I think there also is, yeah, there's a bit of a, it's kind of nice when you can say, yeah, I know that this is what my dad does. And it's something that people will accept, yeah, as nominally a good thing. And so I think, and I mean, let's be honest, we're parents, as parents, part of what we want is to be able to do stuff to make our kids proud it's true.
0: One of the most common reasons that climate change mitigation is personally important to people is because of their children. And we've touched on that already. Are there other drivers for why it's personally important to you?
1: I've wanted to try to leave things better than you found them. After the Peace Corps, my wife and I did a lot of traveling and we'd hike through national parks and there'd be all these signs, leave it better than you found it. And I always thought, yeah, that's kind of A reasonable way to try to lead life. You want to try to leave things a little better than you found it. And I've also understood for a very long time that personal choices can really matter. I've been uh, vegan for almost 25 years, no more closer to 22 I guess, and part of it is just personal choices. I realized that personal choices can matter and so when you think about climate change you also think yeah personal choices can matter and I want to try to make the world incrementally better through some things rather than the same or incrementally worse as possible.
0: You mentioned being a vegan, and I was just talking to somebody who said if you could do one thing to help eat more plants, so you are helping also by being a vegan from a climate change perspective.
1: Yeah, and I will be, to be honest, when I started, we're talking 97, climate change was a thing, but it wasn't a big thing, right? I started for ethical reasons, let's say, for animal rights reasons. But then as time goes on, there are resource reasons, health reasons, sustainability reasons. Yeah, and it's nice now thinking that, yeah, it's a choice that you can make to eat lighter on the planet. And even within veganism, there are different choices that one can make. But yeah, it is nice to think that when Burger King is advertising less methane in their burgers, that's not something I'm going to contribute to.
0: When you meet people that don't understand the data behind climate change, don't believe in climate change, how do you convince them otherwise?
1: I'd answer that question in sort of two different ballparks. The overwhelming majority of my discussions around climate change happen through my job in an academic setting. And so if I'm in my MBA class on sustainable operations, we start by talking about climate change. And I don't really view it as my job there to try to convince them. I tell them that, look, this is a business problem you're facing today. If you're in business, these are MBAs. It's not my job to tell you what to believe or not to believe. You're all numerate enough people to try to figure out what's true or not. But it's a real business problem in the world. And I kind of trust the student's that if I point them to the information, and frankly, because it's an elective class on sustainable operations, most of them have self selected in there. And if they're not MBAs, they're students in environmental engineering or green architecture. They've educated themselves. Or if it's other academic stuff, you know, we're putting on a conference on sustainability, people are going to be interested. In civilian life, you just say, look, the data is out there. I'm a probabilist, so I think there's very few things that I know with probability one. And it's esoteric and drives my wife crazy sometimes. But it's like, yep, there's a super high probability the sun's going to rise in the east tomorrow. But it's not necessarily one. There's a really high probability that climate change is happening. And I think most people accept that based on the empirical evidence they're living with. If they're skeptical, I think a lot of the things we're advocating through climate change mitigation, are things that are just a social good anyway. If I'm wrong about climate change, and it's not really a problem, but we use less electricity, that's just a good thing. If we burn fewer fossil fuels, even if climate change isn't happening, we can talk about pollution and particulates. It's just a good thing. If you're going to walk rather than take your car, just a good thing. And so, Rather than trying to convince people it's, well, these things we're talking about, whether climate change is happening or not, which I happen to believe it is, most of them are just good things anyway, so we should be able to agree on that at least.
0: I understand that point about not being 100% confident really about anything, but you have to take action on things, so you have to believe yes or no. But I share your inability to be 100% confident really about anything.
1: Well, let me just follow up on that because, again, because I'm a probabilist, you look at expected outcomes, and if I decide that I'm going to go into a bar and not wear a mask, I'm not 100% sure I'm going to get sick. I'm not even 50% sure I'm going to get sick, but I'm not going to do that because I understand what the uncertainties are and the risk and benefits are. So, yeah, you need to take actions based on the knowledge you have and the informed probabilities. And in my mind, the informed probabilities on climate change are high enough. And the expected payoff, if we don't mitigate it, is negative enough.
0: Hugely negative.
1: Hugely (laughs) negative. It is, as we would say, sufficiently large that you got to do something.
0: You brought up wearing masks. Can you talk about how the pandemic has changed what you do and how you do it?
1: Yeah, there is sort of two ways I would do it in that it, it changes what I've done in that it's an upheaval in how I work, it's an upheaval in how I teach, and so it's just a sort of recalibration with life. If we're talking specifically with the perspective of climate change, operationally these sorts of big shocks to the system can be catalysts for change. And. I think with this happening, there are two ways specifically with climate change that it's directly relevant. one is is it's helping us see things that we would not necessarily have seen before because we're seeing what reducing the economy can do for climate change, what it does to the natural environment, what it does to people right so in some sense, my economist friends would say this is a massive experiment to see what happened and so It kind of provides us with a perspective on what sorts of changes might we have to make and what might happen if we make these changes. It provides us with an opportunity or a discontinuity so that when we start over or start back, are we going to be doing things differently? Are we going to be driving in cars and on buses less because we're not going into work? And also, I think it changes the conversation because it helps get people's attention because... Uh, a lot of people sort of ignore the natural world and assume things will just kind of take care of themselves and work out. And then when something like this happens, people start to realize, well, geez, if something goes really bad in the natural world, it can really affect us. And I think it adds some perspective about climate change because if something really strange happens with climate change and really dramatic, it might also really affect us.
0: I feel the same way. I have nothing to say about that. (laughs) Can you talk more about what you do as a professor at Carnegie Mellon?
1: I would say that my job is to teach, to do research, and to build. And this is something that I kindly only came on after a while. So I teach undergraduates and MBAs. The courses I teach are theoretical stochastic models classes, which aren't terribly relevant to our conversation Six Sigma, which is basically efficiency, which is relevant in the sense of we want to make things more efficient. And as I said, maybe about 10 years ago, I had students approach me about teaching a course on sustainable operations, because there was a small cohort of students who were interested. And because of sort of things I said in my other classes, they thought I might be a likely suspect to teach it. And because this is something that I'm interested in, And again, because I'm an academic, I have the freedom to say, here's a course that I have a body of students who want it. I'm interested in teaching it. And so the administration's like, sure, go ahead, give it a try. And if I can get enrollment, I can keep teaching it. And if I don't, I can't. I've gotten enrollment. Now the world has moved to a place that I'm gonna pilot to the undergraduates as well. And it's a way of trying to connect the analytical tools we teach students For me, around probability, stochastic processes, statistics, operations, and connect them to trying to make a business or an enterprise more sustainable. So that impacts things like climate change, it impacts things like social welfare, it impacts things like resources, reducing waste, which is pure operations, but also thoughts about well, what sort of mitigation strategies are we going to need if we're hit with a climate shock. So part of what I do is teaching. Part of what I do is research. I think you heard my chat on research, which was I've done research on trying to develop contracts to make rooftop solar more profitable. I read articles out of Nevada where if I can get a little technical for a minute or a little more detailed, if you put on rooftop solar, you can generate excess and then people like to sell it back to the grid. For rooftop solar companies and for consumers, they want to be able to sell it at full retail rate, because that makes more money for these people. But for the utility, this means they have to buy electricity at retail rate rather than selling it at wholesale rate, which means if too many people adopt, they can start hemorrhaging money. The way utilities solve this is by raising rates. But if they raise rates across the board, then you have less affluent consumers who maybe don't have rooftop solar paying more to cross subsidize people who have rooftop solar, which is just not great on multiple situations. So utilities in Nevada said, nope, you're not gonna get retail rate, you're gonna get wholesale rate, you can only sell your electricity back for one cent rather than three. And then Solar City said, fine, we're leaving we can't make money this way. And so it's this sort of complicated social problem. Can we find a way to incentivize people to build rooftop solar, to adopt it, companies to invest in it, but still keep utilities afloat because utilities are a social good? So I've done research on that. I've done research on managing wind farms with batteries, because that's a complicated operational problem. I've done research on how to integrate AVs, autonomous vehicles, onto highways and what that means for capacity and how that might affect congestion and pollution. So there are all these really interesting operational problems that I can do research on that can theoretically help the world a little bit and I can publish and my students can publish. And the third part is just building in the sense of we have a sustainability initiative at the Tepper School if you Google Tepper School initiatives, we have four of them. One of them is sustainability, which is chaired by Nick Muller, who's this brilliant economist slash air pollution expert. We have this intersect conference that I've mentioned that's coming up that we're going to be dealing with COVID and sustainability. So part of what I do is try to build and create infrastructure and I guess a center or mass around topics that I think are interesting, of interest to the school, and potentially of interest to students and society and outsiders. So that's what I do in a very large, long-winded nutshell.
0: Can you talk about your journey, how you got where you are today?
1: Yeah. I graduated college, if I can go back far enough, in 89. I had a degree in applied mathematics, mathematics and computational science, and actually a degree in art history, Greek black figure vase painting, to be specific, because I thought it was just cool, and I had the greatest advisor ever, a woman named Jody Maxman. And then I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do, so I joined the Peace Corps for two and a half years, because I didn't know. And yes, there was an appeal of joining the Peace Corps in that you're also kind of doing something good. I could teach math, which was a need. So I joined the Peace Corps. A bunch of people told me I was crazy because I was kind of getting off the main track. I had friends who were graduating as double E's and then going right to Oracle and you know, and yeah, not for me. And so I was in Botswana for two and a half years teaching junior secondary school mathematics, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Realized when I was there, I wanted to go to graduate school. It took me a while to get away from it to realize I wanted to go back. So I typed out applications on a typewriter from Southern Africa had to hitchhike to Johannesburg to take the GRE, stayed at the YMCA there, happened to meet my wife there. So Peace Corps, good thing in lots of different ways. She was a volunteer. (laughs) Um, She was an English teacher in Botswana also in a village 300 kilometers away. Went back to graduate school and largely at that point, I went back in operations research because I had the dual beliefs that I liked math, I was good at it, and that waste is bad. And I figured operations research, industrial engineering is geared towards reducing waste. And then I graduated with a degree in operations research, queuing theory, which is literally the theory of standing in line, which is probably one of the most boring sounding things you can think (laughs) of, you know?
0: Standing in line is, but making it more efficient is not. Yes,
1: that's right. Fortunately for me, inventory stands in line, waiting to be bought packets stand in line on the internet so I could get a job at CMU at the Tepper School. And then as I got there, my interest developed until generally anything that can be modeled as a large random system or a stochastic process, I can apply myself to. And then more and more and more problems seem to appear to me that were based on climate change, based on efficiency, I'm working on scheduling long-term care, nurse aides and long-term care systems, which isn't necessarily climate change, but it's something that's personally important to me. And I have this skill set that I can use to work on problems that I feel good about. And I think that makes it kind of just a matter of time until things that intersect climate change kind of come up.
0: It sounded from what you said that it was very smooth sailing the whole way.
1: So if that's the case, I've given the completely wrong impression. (laughs) I will look at this within a general framework and then a more specific framework. I mean, research, doing academic research is just an incredible series of setbacks. That is all it is. (laughs) And that you try tons of things and nothing works. And then eventually you try something that does. And, you know, again, this is one of these things I talk about with my wife. She'll be like, you keep doing the same thing over and it's wrong. Why do you keep doing this? And it's like research is you try the same idea over and over. And like on the sixth try, you try something a little bit different and suddenly it works. And so I've gotten... Well,
0: hopefully on every try, you do something a little yes. bit different until you find <laughs> so... the tweak that makes it come right. together. but I've
1: also found that, you know, on the fifth try, I end up realizing, oh no, I tried this on the first or second try because you've forgotten. And so, yes, it's a terrible series of setbacks. But if you're persistent, things can continue teaching my classes. You realize you teach certain topics and you realize, no, that didn't go over well. I used to teach lead in my class. Students were like, yeah, we don't really care about lead. So you throw that out. And then, you know, with the sustainability research in my particular corner of the field, it's gotten much more popular now. But initially, again, it's not really the sort of thing people are are interested in because if you're on the leading edge It's not what people know. It's not necessarily what people do. So I've definitely adopted the viewpoint. It's not the failure that matters. It's being able to try to dust yourself off and get back up and stagger forward and try again. And that's what I feel like academic life is.
0: I think a lot of life is like that. It's a great skill to be able to persevere through challenging times.
1: Yeah. And I guess the other skill, which isn't directly applicable, but which I learned as an administrator is that when you screw up you got to be able to say yeah i screwed that up that's on me i'm sorry i will try not to do it again but you got to kind of own it and i think that's also how we have to be you change your opinions over time or you should you know if you're a living thinking being you've got to also be able to look back and say you know i used to believe x i don't believe x anymore i believe y i've changed not deny that i used to believe stuff but say you know, I learned something. This is why I changed my mind In realizing in five years I'd better be changing my mind again or I'm not thinking.
0: One interesting thing about living with one of my daughters during the pandemic, I think it's rare to get to spend significant time with your child when they're an adult. And they have different perspectives because of the generation gap. And she is teaching me a tremendous amount. I had beliefs that I thought were very fine, good beliefs. But she challenges them, and we talk, and she moves me. She moves me to new ways of thinking. We talk about the difficulties in the pandemic, and they're horrible, but there are benefits, and for me that's a big benefit, getting to think differently because of her.
1: Yeah, my daughter's 20. She goes to college at Pitt. She lives at home. We homeschooled, so I spent lots of time with her from when she was young until she was older. And, yeah, that's one of the things is that when your kids get older, they can really, it's kind of a phase shift. You can think one way and they can say things and suddenly you can think, wow, I never really thought of that perspective. And then it takes a fair amount of thought to figure out, yeah, there is really a really different way of thinking about things.
0: Yeah. I'm not going to say that I go easy. No, (laughs) no, of course not. Of course not. But she gets me there. She gets me there. I'm still the one teaching about finance and things like that.
1: Yeah, I did Excel with my daughter yesterday. So yeah, that there's still stuff I can offer. But I will also say that in all honesty, my wife is the person that I've probably learned the most from. We talked about perseverance being important. Trying to convince me to change my mind about things are studies in perseverance. But my wife, she's one of these people who has a unique vision and she can often see things that are, that are really <laughs> right before I can even do so. And she can help me sometimes kicking and screaming sometimes not realize that yeah there are important new ways of thinking about things and I guess I'm too often apt to fall into thinking what those around me think which I think is a particular danger for people and she's one who's more insulated from that and is more able to say well you know everybody's thinking this but maybe it's important to think another way.
0: I'm looking for a model that describes me in that regard, and I think maybe it isn't what other people think, but that I go in more of a straight line, and I don't mean flat, I go linear, so I do change my thinking, but it's at a nice steady pace, and what my wife does for me sometimes, and especially my daughter now, is really shake it up, and just jump me to a new part on the curve.
1: Yeah, that is exactly right, and I mean, this is again, just an idiosyncratic example, but my wife and i when we married i was a graduate student at columbia so we were not having a big wedding we decided we were going to elope so we eloped we went down to city hall and got married by the the justice of the peace between donuts and afterwards i said well you'll change your last name to wolf because i was wolf and she was Scheller," and she was like and why is that <laughs> you know why am i just going to change your name and i said It's really important to me that we have the same last name. And she said, great, but why am I going to change my last name to your name? And I realized I had absolutely nothing, you know, and so then we decided Scheller Wolf or Wolf Scheller and Wolf Scheller sounded just way too, too Teutonic for us. And so it was that sort of phase change that it's like, yeah, I got nothing here, so I better change the way I'm thinking.
0: That's excellent. (laughs) Can you discuss the successes that you're most proud of?
1: I'm gonna give kind of your cliche academic answer. I look at my students, and these could be my doctoral students that I'm doing research with, who I've done sustainability research with, and now Helen, one of my students, is in Singapore, and she's big into energy and solar there, and Siddharth is in London now and working on batteries and sustainability, among other things, of course. And I think, yeah, the proudest thing I am is really, that you work with students and you can see these people go off on their own little brilliant ways and do sort of amazing things and if i had to point to the one thing i'm proudest of it would be that the mbas chris gassman was among one of them he was at tepper at the time and he got a jd and mba and went to work in sustainability that they thought we want a class in sustainability and there was something about me that they thought I was a likely suspect. And I thought, yeah, this is interesting to me, I can do this. And now I pull students from all over, undergrads, MBAs, and most of them don't go off and do sustainability, but some of them do. They go off and do sustainability consulting, they do startups, they go into environmental engineering. I have students come in who think that this whole sustainability thing is just a bunch of crap, but they're going to take the course to see what it's about, and we can have really spirited debates about what is and isn't and how you can kind of tell. And so I feel like this is something that I can leave after me, is that this body of students who are more interested in this and have a little better idea of, how to understand these things. And like I said, also the sustainability initiative at Tepper, the Intersect Conference, that if people Google Intersect at CMU 2020, they'll find a website where we're talking about the impact COVID has had on society, the economy, education, healthcare, and sustainability. And so there are these sort of, too grand a word, but sort of legacies you leave behind that After I'm gone, there are going to be other people doing this stuff that I helped. And there are going to be other things potentially left behind at Tepper or other places that I helped leave there. And so that's sort of the things that I'm I'm most proud of.
0: There's a lot of aspects of cycling in that discussion of your success. So you showed that you were open to sustainability, but some students actually dragged you in. And then you taught it, and then they went on. You have students that go on to do things. So there's this constant giving each other gifts.
1: Yes, that is a beautiful way of saying it. There's a constant giving each other gifts, a constant learning from each other. And that's why I think I have the greatest job in the world because I'm surrounded by lots of really smart, motivated people with really broad backgrounds who can teach me stuff. And this was one of them. And there's stuff that I can be so gosh darn sure about for decades. And a student can say, well, no, you're wrong. And they might even be able to prove it to me mathematically, right? Or with data and I can be like, wow, it's a little disconcerting. No one likes being wrong. It's disorienting, but it's also like, wow, I learned something here that I had no idea of last week. And that is just an incredible gift. Yes.
0: It's very exciting to go from when you're young and you're never wrong in your own mind to being able to begrudgingly accept it to getting to a point where you're excited about it because it means you've really learned something.
1: Yes. And I think by the time you're my age, I've gotten used to being wrong so often that (laughs) I still don't take it as well as I should. There are those stages of grief, right? When you're wrong on something big, you go through stages, but you hope at the end that you get to a point where you're glad that you've realized something. I work with a woman in computer science named Moore Harkall Balter, and something that I learned about Moore is she wants to be right. And by that, I don't mean that she wants her opinion to be right, She wants to be right. And if her opinion is right, she's going to convince you. But if your opinion is right and you convince her, it's not like, oh, she's begrudging. Then she wants to do what your opinion was because she just wants to be right. There's not a lot of ego there.
0: That's an awesome way to be, right? That's fantastic. Yeah, it is. It
1: is. And so it's something you learn. I want to be right. And if my being right means that I have to change how I think, then I want to be mature enough that I can do that.
0: That's awesome. Can you talk about your vision of the future 20, 30, 40 years out with regard to climate change?
1: There's a line in a song we listen to. So full of hope, but prone to grief. And that's kind of how I feel because you've got to be hopeful because if you're not hopeful, it's really hard to get up in the morning. When I'm being optimistic or trying to be optimistic, I can think, well, it's a broad world full of really brilliant people who, once we focus, can do amazing things. And if you read history, you're just constantly amazed at what people can come up with and the problems that they can solve. I'd like to think in 20 or 30 or 40 years, climate change has gotten our attention sufficiently well that we're working to solve the problems. And one looks at technology and there's all these amazing technologies that people talk about. And if one one-hundredth of them come to fruition, the world can fundamentally be changed, whether we're talking about battery storage technology or bacteria that eat plastic and put off methane that you can harness for other things, or ways to just change people's behavior. So there are all these things that one thinks wow we could be in such a better place in decades if some of these things pan out but there's also the prone to grief that you look and you think what's it going to take to get our attention the pandemic getting our attention now but really awful it's way hot in pittsburgh this year the hottest month in 50 years or something. And no, I'm not going to attribute an individual month to climate change. But if you look at the trends, it doesn't look great. And then there are lots of people talking about increased climate change, playing a role in pandemics, playing a role in weather, warfare tied to resource shortage. So you can see how I can very easily veer into the prone to grief. Yeah, I think things are going to get bad because I think Human beings being the way that we are, they have to get bad for us to pay enough attention to figure out how to make them better. I don't know how bad it's going to be, and I don't know how long it's going to take. That's kind of what I feel. But if you want to look 30 or 40 years down the road, I feel like we will at that point be at the other side of the badness. Things will be getting better, but there will be problems. One other thing that I do want to mention that I think the pandemic has shown people is people got to work, you know, and if fixing climate change, mitigating climate change is going to throw huge sloths of people out of work or tell them that you can't do what you did anymore, figure out something else to do, that's not happening. You know, you look at what is happening to society now with people who can't go to work because it's closed or have a hard time working because they don't have child care for school. And we can kind of get through this because it's a short term shock. We hope. We hope. Right. I do believe that there will be mitigation. So we're not going to be in lockdown perpetually.
0: Not one. Right. But close enough to one that you believe it. Yes.
1: Yes, exactly. Not with probability one. We've got to figure out climate change in a way that doesn't just throw masses of people out of work. That's not going to solve the problem either.
0: So we brought up the pandemic a couple of times now. Do you think the pandemic, because of the lessons that we're learning, helps the climate change mission? Or do you think it makes it worse or no impact?
1: I think it helps. I want to be very careful to make it clear that I'm in no way, shape, or form saying pandemic, good thing.
0: Pandemic, bad thing. Pandemic,
1: terrible thing, right? Okay. That being said, bad things often have lessons you learn from them. Yes, I think there are lessons from the pandemic on different ways to reshape society, progress that can be made, developing vaccines and changing human behavior in ways that we didn't think before. But also, a real glaring example about how hard it is to change human behavior and how common humans are to backsliding. People will wear masks and huddle up for a while, and then they kind of get sick of it, and you've got house parties of 700 people in New Jersey. This is the world we live in, and if we're going to make progress, we have to understand how to make progress in such a way that we can all move together and that. Everyone or enough of us can work towards the better good, whatever that is, that all of society can move. So, yeah, I think this is a big experiment in a big lab. And I think the learnings we get from that can help inform us about climate change.
0: So I also think it's a horrible thing. I think we also can learn a lot from it. However, one of the things that I'm not so excited about that I'm beginning to see is that the nations of the world and even the states in the United States are putting up boundaries. And I really think with climate change, we all need to team up. We have to find a way to act as one planet. I don't think individual countries or states ultimately can make this happen.
1: I agree with you. I would say that one of the benefits of having individual countries and states is that as different countries and states try different things, we can figure stuff out. So maybe not closing down is a good idea. You give it a try, Sweden. Okay. And then we can say, okay, it looks like that wasn't such a great idea according to the data we have. So there's that heterogeneity, which is beneficial. I think if we're going to solve climate change, to be totally honest, I hate to sound like such a business school professor, and I'm certainly not a full-throated capitalist, but Capitalism is going to have to kick in. There's going to have to be ways that it is in everyone's best interest, direct best interest, in order for this to flow across borders and become universal. And until that happens, countries are going to throw up boundaries. And it's going to be, I can outsource my manufacturing from California, where I have strict environmental standards, to... China or Mexico or other countries where I don't and we're not all doing the same thing and it's not going to work. And so we need to get to a place where it's in everyone's best interest for us to mitigate climate change globally. And that gets back to why I think it's going to get worse before better, because I think it's going to take a while for us to get to a point where we're at that uniform level.
0: I think what I hear you saying is that it's going to need to be a reactive best interest for everybody, not a proactive best interest for everybody. I would argue that if you think proactively, it already is in everybody's best interest to do something about it.
1: Oh, I completely agree. I am pessimistic about human nature in general, and so I think that people do things in their best interest and... Some people, their proactive best interest is going to be, yes, I have to change this now. Other people's proactive best interest is, I gotta figure out how to put dinner on the table and make rent this month. I will tell you that I had a large consumer products firm in my class as a guest lecturer in sustainable operations. And they said they had done surveys on how likely people were to adopt and buy green practices and green products because they're a consumer products company. And they assumed going into it that they would see large segmentation across income level and they didn't, okay? And so I want to very clearly call out this idea which I almost propagated that it's kind of the upper class wealthy people who are gonna lead on this. This isn't what the data found from this large consumer products company who I kinda trust because yes, they're in it to make money, okay? So I think that there are plenty of people who have the ability to be proactive, but if you've ever been in a situation, known people in a situation or grown up in a situation where maybe it was more of a struggle to make rent or put food on the table, you understood That, yes, I would love to be green, but that's a second-order effect now. And it needs to be a first-order effect for everybody.
0: Well, that's not good news because a first-order effect for everybody means there's a lot of suffering going on.
1: Yes. Or we have brought people to a place where these first-order effects are less painful, okay? We're in a place where... People can feel relatively stable about their job, their income, providing education for their kid, social welfare and social justice, that they can then think about other things.
0: When you were talking about people being motivated by self-interest, I couldn't help but flash back to Jeff Goldblum in The Big Chill, where he was talking about everybody acting in their best interest. It's just that his self-interests weren't as Nicely looked upon as other people's self-interest. Right.
1: And again, it's somewhat pessimistic. But I think if you want people to change their behavior, you have to convince them that it's in their best interest. And I believe, optimistically, that most people are reasonable and you can get them to that point. But people are going to do what they used to do because it makes sense to them until you can convince them that it's beneficial to change the way they do things and we can look at the turmoil that society is going through now around racial justice, which is a whole nother discussion, right? But there are conversations we're having now that we would not have dreamed of having six months or a year ago, right? Western societies changed dramatically in a short amount of time because it got people's attention. So there is that potential for a phase change that can happen I just hope it happens around climate change sooner rather than later.
0: What's the most important change you think the average person maybe listening to this podcast can do to help mitigate climate change?
1: I'm gonna give a general and then a specific answer. And the general answer I'm going to say is look at what you're doing in your life every day and look at how you personally can move a little bit towards a more sustainable place, and I think this is important because large movements are made of individual steps, and it's important for human dignity and human autonomy to take responsibility for what we're doing, and I think it works. If one looks in the past about social justice movements, boycotts have proved very effective. I'm thinking about anti-slavery movement in Britain and the sugar boycott, the book. There's a book, Bury the Chains, which is just a remarkable book. And so I think taking individual action can be very effective and very powerful. And so that's what I would encourage people to do in general. You know, it's the anecdote of the girl walking down the beach and it's littered with jellyfish and she's picking them up and throwing them into the ocean. And somebody says, you know, what are you doing? There's no way you can possibly make a difference. And she picks one up and throws it back in the water and says, yeah, I just did for that one though. So that's the general answer. Look at your life. Look at what you can do that's more or less painful that can make a difference. Specifically, speaking from me, change the way you eat. Change the way you consume in general. Look at where your cell phone comes from and how often you need a new one. Look at where your computer comes from. But these are longer scale things. Change what you eat. If you don't want to go vegan for any sorts of reasons, I've heard all of them, by the way, you don't have to. But figure out how you can eat a little lighter on the planet and try it. Try it for one meal. Try it for a certain amount of days. Try it for 100 days. I don't know. Just try it and see if It can be emblematic of the one change you make and then realize, yeah, I can change this. I can change other stuff about my life too. I'll walk instead of taking the car or taking the bus. I will look at changing how I power my house. But how you eat is the immediate thing you can do three times a day or even more than three times a day if you're snackish. That can make a difference. And I know that's the annoying vegan answer, but it's the honest one for me.
0: Do you have any questions for me?
1: Yes, I do. So general and specific. So the, the general one I'm going to ask you is the same one you asked me, 30 or 40 years. What do you see?
0: Similar to what you said, I think that bad things are upon us. They're already happening. They are going to get worse. We've already gone too far. So the real question is, when is it bad enough to make it a priority for most of the planet so that we start going in the other direction. And even after we start moving in the other direction, it won't immediately take effect. It will still take a while. So there'll be even worse things coming after that, but at least we'll be on the road to a future. And frankly, I think it's gonna get pretty bad. And I think the future is going to take a while to get here. But I'm also hopeful, prone to grief, (laughs) but hopeful that we will find a way to minimize the
1: impact. Okay, that, so yeah, quite similar to what I, I would say. If one's looking at the full of hope angle, what sorts of things out there give you hope?
0: I am familiar with a lot of technology out there and there are tremendous innovations being worked on. Some are going to happen. You said one out of 100, that would be enough because there is so much innovation in this space. And while we have a lot of the solutions already working, look, Solar and storage have both fallen considerably in price. Tesla is the number one valued car company now, only making an EV. We have come a long way technology wise. I actually do believe we are going to have great innovation in this space. That's going to make it easier to eventually get over the hump. Yep. And I have to pair that by saying planetary will is what's in the way. And unfortunately, I think the only way to get there is when the planet experiences pain, that will increase the will. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Is there anything else that you want to say?
1: Yeah. I guess the other thing that that I would want to say is, knowing that this podcast was coming, I thought, well, okay, what what are the main things I think about? And I think of, yeah, we're kind of building for the future and yes, having kids totally changes your perspective. And I think, yeah, the kids and the kids I see in my, in my classes who aren't really kids anymore, they're really the future. And so one wants to, A, protect the future for them, but also try to give them the tools that they can use to make things better. And the two of the tools that I think are crucial to, let me say, model are the whole personal responsibility thing. What can I do now to make a little difference? Because that's empowering and that demonstrates to other people that they can be empowered to change their future even a little bit. Even if, yes, I'm really at the mercy of the other billions of people on the planet, I can at least do a
0: little. Save the jellyfish.
1: That's right. And the other thing is, and this is, I think, kind of a sort of a a really sincere plug for what you're doing is we've got to learn to talk to each other one of the things that I can despair about when I'm in that sort of a mood is that it becomes harder and harder to talk about each other about different things and when my class is going well it's because I've got people in there who really believe in climate change and really don't believe in climate change or believe it's a bigger or stronger effect or it's man-made or it's not man-made And you can really see people, smart people arguing with each other and arguing is not necessarily a bad word, right? You keep it within boundaries of reasonable behavior. We got to learn how to debate and discuss and argue because that's the only way we can hope to harness everyone's opinion and everyone's knowledge to try to get to those things that are going to work right again i'm a shameless academic you try to argue with people to find out whether two plus two really does equal four okay we've got to learn to do that as a society and one of the things that scares me in society is we seem to be talking less we seem to be trying to shut each other up we seem to be trying to remove ideas that are harmful And yes, there are certain things that shouldn't be said and there are certain ideas that are harmful, but what we're gonna go through is going to be difficult enough and potentially terrible enough for enough people that we've gotta be able to have really honest conversations with each other. And that's one thing that I think will help us get through it a little bit
0: faster. And on that note, i 'm going to wrap this up, and i 'm going to wrap it up with a wrap as a professor. you thought you could do some things for the social good you found in the peace Corps that you could leave the world better than before. Another great thing about your peace Corps life is that is where you met your wife sustainability. It's not what you were seeing when 22 years ago you became a vegan. You think each morning up will rise the sun, but you don't believe in probability one. As a professor, there are three things that keep you fulfilled. You like to teach, research, and build. You almost made a marital goof until you decided on Scheller Wolf. (laughs) (laughs) Success of your students. It is a sustainable with them you created a circle that's sustainable you want people to do something it's time they began it just eat a little lighter on the planet i know if you had just one small wish it would be for each of us to save a jellyfish and when i asked you about your future belief you said you're so full of hope but prone to grief
1: I'm very impressed that that was done in real time. How you can kind of summarize an hour's conversation in a couple minute wrap and even make it run.
0: I'm going to remember this discussion for a long time. From Alan saying that he wants to be right, and if his being right means that he has to change how he thinks, then he wants to be mature enough that he can do that. To the girl on the beach, picking up a jellyfish, throwing it into the ocean, and saying, I helped that one. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, please visit my website at crevadenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Alan said that arguing is not necessarily a bad word if you keep it within the boundaries of reasonable behavior. By learning how to debate and discuss and argue, we can harness everyone's opinion and knowledge to try to get to those things that are going to work and mitigate climate change.